Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to consider these next episodes that happens to David. And as you're turning there, I want to let you in on reality in America today. Uh, This surprised me some this week. I kind of knew it, but didn't have uh, first-hand understanding of where we stand right now as Christians in the United States of America. I want you to consider for a minute our predicament. Just give you a couple examples. A year ago, last July, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of gay marriage, and one of the judges, Judge Alito, wrote a dissent. And in his dissent, here's what he said. Now, feel the weight of this. This isn't some extremist scare tactic website telling us this. This is a Supreme Court justice. He said, I assume that those who cling to the old beliefs, so he's saying in light of this ruling, he says, I assume that those who cling to old beliefs, the old way of thinking of marriage, will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes, he writes. But if they repeat those views in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as governments as such by employers and by schools. So a year ago, one of the Supreme Court justices said, in light of what just passed, you may be able to hold your old view on marriage in your own home or maybe with inside the walls of your churches. And then just recently, he wrote another dissent as the Supreme Court decided not to hear a case from Washington State about a law that forces a family-owned pharmacy to dispense emergency contraceptives So there's a law in Washington state that tells the small family pharmacy you have to provide drugs for emergency abortions. And the Supreme Court decided not to hear this case. And Justice Alito said, this is an ominous sign. If this is a sign of how religious liberty claims will be treated in the years ahead, those who value religious freedom have cause for great concern. All week long, I got to, or or the last few days, I got to hear from lawyers who are battling these cases all across the United States. The, The same lawyer that defended the firefighter in Atlanta, who was the chief 
of the fire department who lost his job for writing curriculum on his own time outside of the fire department for young men in his church teaching them biblical manhood and womanhood. He lost his job. The lawyer fighting these cases says it's real. And for too long, the church has not been the prophetic witness and engager of culture and society and politics. Rather, the church relegated itself to being a pawn to a religious party. To put our hope in man's power rather than the power of the Gospel. I found myself finding fear raise up in my heart. Depression, in a sense, as reality was being explained to us. Those are the faces. Those are the lawyers. This is really happening. Right now, a church in Iowa has filed a lawsuit against the civil rights uh, movement there that says they have to have their bathrooms provide transgender uh, opportunities within the church, and they fear that they can even control what they say from the pulpit in Iowa. And as you can, as maybe you're feeling right now, the question in my mind is like, so what do we do? What does this mean for us as Christians the next 20 years? I don't know what fears you come in here with. It may not be fear of persecution. It may be fear in a marriage that's struggling. It could be fear of social acceptance among your peer groups and with your friends. It could be a fear about your identity in how you feel like you don't measure up. It could be fear about your physical health. And it could be fear about death. And what I want us to consider is, what does the Bible say to us? What help do we get from God's Word? And I also want you to consider, what's true power as we come to this text? Because to be honest with you, I want power in this dark world. Real power. Not political power that uses me. I want real power. And so as you can see in your notes, my charge to you is to respond to life's difficult circumstances in light of the kingdom of God. Respond to life's difficult circumstances in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is on a throne in heaven. See, this is what we're here to represent. And it looks crazy in the eyes of the world as it did in David's day. Just to bring you into context, if you remember last week, David considered, asked God, 
if he should go help the Canaanites. He's on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. The Lord says, go help them. So David and his men enter this walled city. He basically boxes himself in and goes and saves the Canaanites from the Philistines. Uh, David hears that Saul realizes, look at this opportunity, I'm going to kill him. He asks the Lord, should I leave? The Lord is gracious to him and says, you shall leave. They're going to give you up to them. And he goes on the run again. And he's in the mountains, the, the desert mountains of southern Judea. And he's running for his life. He's in the land of Ziph. He's got 600 men. This is a barren land. This challenges the men of Ziph. There's not that much food. A foreigner has come in. Somehow David has to feed these men. They go to Saul and say, hey, we know where David is. You want him? You want him and his men? David is on the run, totally within God's will. He's on the run from one one circumstance to the next where God continues to protect him. Saul figures out where he is, catches up to him. Saul's army is on one side of the mountain. David's on the other. And Saul is starting to send, split his group up and surround them. But then a messenger comes and cries out, the Philistines are raiding the land. Saul leaves and David is protected. That's what brings us up to this point. Last week, we looked at the gift of hearing from God. Saul did not have a prophet of God anymore. David did. So as we read in verse 1, here's what we see. Basically, we're going to split this into two different sections. Verses 1-15, through and then we're going to ask two questions. And then verses 16 through 22, and we're going to ask two more questions. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Get the picture. His men are amazed at this providential working of God where their enemy walks into a cave to relieve himself. I thought that meant to go to the bathroom. It seems like it means to let weight off his feet to rest. Saul goes in there and his men say, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has given David's enemy into his hand. Sometimes it's difficult to 
figure out God's will. But this one is crystal clear, right? You see, they have hope that David's enemies are going to be destroyed. Back in chapter 20, Jonathan, in a sense, prophesied as he promised David that he would remain faithful to him. And he says, he's telling David, if you have power, don't kill me. Don't cut me off. You see, that's what every other kingdom would do. If you want to usurp the king, you kill the king, his children, and the whole family, you wipe him out. If you're going to do it how the world does it. And in verse 15 of 1 Samuel 20, he says, Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And David's men who are fearing for their life, their very life is at stake are finally breathing a sigh of relief. This is it. This is the day that the Lord has made for David to conquer his enemies. Would we not think exactly the same thought of his men? But, David is different. David is shockingly different. I mean, we can hardly imagine this, but look at the end of verse 4. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Big deal! Right? He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against Him, seeing the Lord's anointed. You see, do you understand what it means when something's anointed of the Lord? It means it's God's. It means that if you oppose that, you oppose God. And David said, I just cut the robe of the Lord's anointed as fear struck David's heart. And then verse 7 says, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Now, the Hebrew here, listen, listen to what one commentator says. This is Ralph Dale Davis. He says, One would never know it from our Bible versions, most of which allege that David persuaded, rebuked, or restrained his men with words. But the Hebrew text reads, So David tore apart his men with words, suggesting that David had to resort to violent, threatening language to cool their blood. Of course he did. They're running for their lives. And David isn't going to seize the opportunity to destroy his enemy. You better believe it's going to take more than 
a few soft words to restrain these men from David or from them slaying their enemy. So the temptation before David is instant relief right now. This is the day. But we read on, verse 8, afterwards, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I'll not put my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. See my Father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt to take my hunt my life to take it may the lord judge between me and you may the lord avenge me against you but my hand shall not be against you as the proverb of the ancient says out of wicked comes wickedness but my hand is not against you after whom the king after whom has the king of israel come out After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it to plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Two questions I want to ask here. Why did David respond the way he did? These questions are closely related. The next question is how did David respond the way he did? Why did David respond the way he did? The answer is he feared God more than man. He values God's opinion above man's opinion. He knows that if he's going to be king, the Lord is going to have to make him king. He knows that if he slays, Saul, this is how every other kingdom on the face of the earth works. One king kills another king by man's power. He fears God more than man. He doesn't see Saul as his enemy. He does not see Saul ultimately as his enemy, but he fears more than being killed by Saul cutting the robe of the Lord's anointed, offending the God of the universe. That's amazing. The second thing he sees is he has a high view of the kingship of Israel. And the reason why he has a high view of this, of the kingship of Israel is because the Lord is the one who is king over it and who makes the little king in it. He recognizes that this is a different type 
of kingdom. We see this in verse 6 and verse 10b. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against Him, seeing He's the Lord's anointed. That's the why question. Why didn't He do it? Because He feared God more than He feared Saul. We also see it in 10b. I'll not put my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. He told Saul why He didn't do it. How did He respond the way He did? How could He respond that way? To trust? And I'm going to give you five ways He did it. Five ways. First of all, He trusted that the Lord will destroy His enemies. That the Lord is the avenger of man. You see, He doesn't have hope in Himself defeating His enemies. He believes that God is going to defeat His enemies. He I mean, he believed what Paul later said, Romans 12.19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God doesn't get glory as His people who are trembling in fear, go to avenge what the wrath of God is going to avenge. God hands His sword to governments, to police and protect, but to His servants, to the church, you do not go avenge. Leave it to the wrath of God. This isn't some wimpy thing. Read the Psalms as the psalmist prays, O Lord, get them. You get them. I'm not going to go get them. You get them. You come and you destroy your enemies. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Is what Israel was told. Deuteronomy 32, verse 31, speaking of Israel's enemies, for their rock, little r, is not as our rock is. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of, of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is poison, the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid in store, up in store with me, sealed in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time of their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom shall come quickly. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants when He sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining. Bond are free. God has always told His people, don't fear your enemies. There's no one standing with them. You wait for Me. You trust in Me. You trust in My power. So, number one, trust that the Lord will destroy your enemies. 
How did David do it? He had that faith. Also, David trusted that if he'll be king, God will put him there. He believed that God had the power to do that. He had a humble view of himself. What am I? I'm a dog. I'm a flea. I'm a threat to you, Saul. What are you doing chasing me around? Who are you listening to? David understood who he was. What confidence is David going to have if he rises up in his own strength? He also did it because he had a covenant friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son. David has made a covenant with Jonathan. In fifth, he knew that the method matters to God. You see, most of us think, most of us know God's will. God's Word is clear on God's will. We know God's will in so many different things. What's God's will for marriage? We know the answer to that. The question is, is do we know the method to get it? What's our job as the church? David knew that the method mattered as much as the end. Is, has God rejected Saul's kingdom? Absolutely He has. Well then, fulfill God's will. Kill Him right there. You see, he knew that God's methods mattered as much as God's will. Remember Saul's methods? Remember how Saul functioned as a pragmatic king? Saul's unlawful sacrifice. The Philistines were coming. He didn't know what to do. So he decided to make the sacrifice rather than wait for Samuel. Remember Saul's rash vow? As he, even though God was supernaturally destroying the Philistines, he had to make a rash vow. He didn't want his soldiers to quit. You can't eat until the end of the day. And then it climaxed in chapter 15. Samuel came to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. Samuel told Saul, God wants you to wipe out the Amicalites, man, woman, child. Here's what he says. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? He's saying, Yeah, you fulfilled God's will one way, but you did not do it by the method that I gave you. You did it according to man's wisdom. In these ways, David did the unthinkable. To everybody. To Saul? To his men? What in the world? How does this happen? Well, I give you five reasons it happened. Third question. I want to ask is what's the result of David's response? What good comes from doing it God's way? Look at verses 6, start at verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, David, my son? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you 
evil. What's the result of David responding this way? Here's one. Sin is confessed. Saul says, you're more righteous than I am. I'm sinful. Sin is confessed. Yes, it may be a worldly repentance. (coughs) It doesn't seem like it's a godly repentance. But there is ground in recognition to reality out of Saul's own mouth. This is righteousness. This is not righteousness. If his head gets lopped off, we don't get to see this. There's a weeping over his lack of integrity. I mean, it is amazing. Power just hit the king. The most powerful king just experienced power that made him weep. Secondly, Righteousness is modeled in David. So sin is confessed. Righteousness is modeled. And then in verse 18, look at this. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemies, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Here's what happened. Here is the result. Saul says, is there anyone in the universe that lets their enemies go? Who does this? What type of power is this so contrary to the power of the world, to the power of man? Utter unbelief, pondering. What do we have here? And then, and so the third thing we see that results from it is self-sacrificial love is put on display. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing the power put on display in self-sacrificial love. You might say, why do you keep saying power? Because of verse 20. And now behold, I know that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. The one who holds the earthly power because of the way David did it according to God's will here. The earthly power says, my power can't stand this power. You're going to be king. There's no doubt. What do we forfeit as the church? when we have a king on the throne, we're on the other side of the cross. We know David's greater son. We know that he defeated death, that though we die, yet shall we live. We know that our sins are wiped away. So why are we so fearful? Why are we willing to give away the power of the gospel? when things get a little scary around us, rather than stand boldly in self-sacrificial love to our homosexual friends? Why why, Why are they our enemy? Is it God's will that they do that? No, it's not. 
But you know what? They don't stand before our throne. They stand before His throne. Judgment is mine, says the Lord. Church, you're sent with a message to go to sinners, go to the broken, go to the blinded, and bring them My Word. Tell them about My grace. Put on display self-sacrificial suffering. And that's what the world can't understand. That's what the world can't grasp. And then look at verse 21. Here's what Saul does. Swear to me therefore by the Lord, now that the power is transferred, the king starts begging the soon-to-be king. Here's what he says. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you'll not cut off my offspring after me, that you'll not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. You know, you might hear that and you might think, well, that's no big deal. That is... You would expect David at this point to say, you know what? If I'm going to be king, i got to get rid of my threats like everyone else does. But David swears that his kingdom will not rule like the world's. At least not yet. So those are the result of doing God's will, God's way. And I just want to ask us the question, do we want to hand that away in our fear? Because let's be honest, it is a scary world we live in. Not nearly as scary as for so many other Christians in the world, but it doesn't look that good for us going into the future. Or does it? Has the church, will the church be shaken out of its cling to man's king? Will the church grab the gospel and not hand it away for the sake of morality? Having a moral majority that believes morals but casts the gospel away. Will the church in boldness and self-sacrificial Love, bless when they curse. Speak kindly when they speak angrily. And put our hope in a king so much bigger than any earthly king. That's the question. And the fourth question I want to ask here is where will you get the power to live like David did in this chapter? I'm just going to... A little spoiler here. David doesn't always live like this. Right? There's only one person who lived like David lived in this chapter every day. We don't live like this every day. But if you're going to, where are you going to get the power? Where is that kind of power going to come from? Well, if you remember way back when we started this series, back in 1 Samuel 2, I want you to turn there in your Bibles. I want to read to you five verses. First Samuel chapter two, starting verse six. We have Hannah's prophetic prayer in a dark day in Israel. It's about as dark and as bleak as you could imagine it. There's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing according to what man thinks. 
Here's what we read. The Lord kills, the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, He raises up. The Lord makes poor and He makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of earth are the Lord's and on them He set the world. Notice the theme so far. God is in control of everything. He will guard the feet, verse 9, of His faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. Let me read that again. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. The only way you or I are going to have this power is if we believe by faith in God's Word that He's the one that raises up, that He's the one that protects, that He's the one that will destroy His enemies. And they're His enemies, aren't they? Aren't all those enemies that we point at exactly what we were apart from the grace of God? They're not sinning against us. They're sinning against the Lord. We were them and we've been shown mercy. It is so right for Jesus to be the judge and to be the King. Listen to what Ralph Dale Davis says. I just couldn't say it better than this. Yahweh's will must be achieved in Yahweh's way. The end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. David's men do not see this. They claim to have God in their pocket and to know how He relates to the specific situation. It is so obvious and so clear to them. David's son faced the same test. The devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world with all their splendor and said to these, all these I'll give to you. Matthew 4.8 What the devil offered him was the will of God for Jesus. that interesting? I'll give you all the kingdoms. Well, that is God's will for Jesus Christ. What the devil offered him was God's will for Jesus' life. Jesus doubtless knew that God had promised him all these things in their splendor from Psalm chapter 2. But God's will must come to pass in God's way via the obscience to the devil through the humiliation of the cross. This kind of test is not confined to David and Jesus. It comes again and again to most all of Yahweh's servants. It's the temptation of the shortcut. It's the temptation to live by faith and avoid suffering. When that very suffering is where God puts His power on display and gives hope to a world. God's will is done. 
God's way. Imagine if Jesus would have taken all the kingdoms of the world and didn't do it God's way. You and I would be destined for hell with no hope. We're God's witnesses. We're called right now at this point in time in redemptive history to lovingly, self-sacrificially suffer as we proclaim confidently and boldly the words of God. We send out words of warning and words of redemption. We tell them about a judgment that's coming, but we don't judge them. God judges them. We tell them about judgment. We show them their sin. And then we show them the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the call for our life. I don't have time to use Peter as an example. But at one point, Peter pulled out a sword and tried to do it man's way. And go read First and Second Peter and you see what he thinks about suffering. Joyfully, confidently, without a sword, but having hope in God's plan. Father, I pray that we would look at our great example. The One who ruled through suffering. Self-sacrificial love destroyed the powers to be. Lord, we know that all the evil power we see right now is as good as destroyed. Yes, it's flourishing in the moment, but it has a destined day just as King Saul had a destined day shortly following him. Father, I pray that everyone here would recognize that we're sinners, that we ourselves do not have righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would know the truth that You and Your love didn't come to save good people, but You came to seek and save the lost through one good man, Jesus Christ, who was the substitution, bore the wrath of God in our place so that we could experience mercy, so that we also could extend mercy to fellow sinners. God, I pray You would work in this way, that this church would be marked with power that comes through doing Your will, Your way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.